Well, we're turning now to series two of the Way Up course, and uh, once again, Ian has chosen this uh, picture for us, which I think is a, is quite a, a, a good uh, picture. When I was sort of thinking about it, I thought, well, I've actually been there. I've been to Rio. I've stood under that statue. It really is massive, uh, but it, it just seemed to me that it, it kind of gives you the sense of Jesus that stands uh, towering over history like no one else. And here in Rio de Janeiro, which is an ordinary uh, cosmopolitan and sometimes damaged city, you know, typical city of the, of the 20th century, uh, there's this statue to Jesus over the top of it. And I thought, well, if only people knew that it is Jesus, that is not just some figure that came 2,000 years ago, but a massive figure in terms of the history of the world. So that's the, that's the subject for series number two, and our overall title for this series is The Coming of Christ. Uh, these are the themes for the series, just so that you can uh, get a foretaste, but there are some leaflets up the back, so do take them. We've probably still got about 800 left, so we could do with somebody <laughs> to take a few of them. Uh, we did just change the name of the second one, uh, which I think I put as The Coming of Christ, and actually I've uh, titled it now, Who is Jesus? So that's an investigation into Jesus. Uh, number nine, uh, what happened on the cross? A lot of somebody once said to me, "How is it that somebody dying two thousand years ago can affect me?" And uh, that really was in my mind when I was preparing this. How, the how of it? How does this work? How, you know, it's easy to say Jesus died for our sins, but how does it work? What does it mean? The final return is the things of the end times, which are becoming more and more relevant, I think, in the days that we're living in. Number, uh, well, it's number 11 of the series is What Must I Do? That was one of the first questions that was asked when the gospel was preached about Jesus. Well, what, am I, what do I do about all this? So that will be specifically directed to that. And then the final one on this series, which will take us through to the beginning of December, if you're still able to manage it by that time, will be... Um, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, tonight, then we're looking at what went wrong. And uh, there's a, a couple of questions that seem to me to hang on this. First of all, why did, why did Jesus have to come? Before we go into talking about Jesus coming, we're going to ask the question, well, why? I mean, why was it necessary for him to come? Uh, we had somebody preaching at church last Sunday and he, he read this passage from Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 and it struck me that this kind of encapsulates it. It talks about our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. So, I mean, that, that passage says it. He came to rescue us. That's why he came. That does imply that we're, we're in a bit of a jam, that we need rescue. We need somebody to come and help us and to pull us out of it. And of course, many of you will know that Christianity is a lot about salvation. But to a lot of people, the idea of salvation, of being saved, is actually a bit of a joke. Um, so we're going to be looking at why it was necessary for him to come and how serious our condition is. John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believed in him would not perish. I mean, that sounds serious. This sounds like life and death. You know, is it really that important that Jesus came into the world? Not many people think that, I'm afraid. But the Bible says, yes, it is life and death. It is crucial decision that we have to face. And everybody is involved in Romans 3. Verse 23, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. There's nobody, nobody's got it right. 
You know, I haven't got it right any more than anybody else. I'm a sinner that got saved. That's, that's all any of us can claim. But it actually says that although everybody's, everybody's a failure, God has made it possible for every of us, every one of us to be a success and to graduate and to come through and to pass with flying colours uh, into his presence and into his glory. Okay. Uh, now, if there's anybody here tonight or anybody online that's watching this that says, well, you know, what kind of evidence is there of what you're saying? Well, it seems to me it's all around us. You've got, uh, I mean, I think they said recently in London, but not only in London, in many of the cosmopolitan centres of the country, stabbing is massively on the increase. What's happened to people uh, that they, so, they carry knives and so easily and quickly use them? Uh, there's marriages breaking down at every level. I mean, many people don't actually get married in the first place. Uh, we seem less willing and able to commit ourselves to lifelong bonds uh, in, uh, in our most intimate relationships. Often people go from serial relationships, one to the other. Suicide among the young, it's now epidemic. I think it's the largest cause of death among young men is suicide. Um, and uh, drugs and alcohol, you will know, I'm sure, that there are, I mean, I haven't even kept up with it. I remember when there were drugs like LSD and heroin and cannabis and things like that. Now there's a whole load of designer drugs that are being peddled and pushed and so on. So that increasingly you feel that even at a young age, people are uh, becoming hopelessly addicted to chemicals in order to sustain their lives. So, it's a, it's a, so there are massive signs of society being under huge stress and strain. And depression and mental health. Do you notice everybody now is talking about mental health? The government's talking about mental health. They're setting aside money for mental health uh, because it looks like people are cracking it under the strain. And yet, in some senses, we've never had it so good. Somebody coined that phrase, didn't they? And uh, and still, I mean, still, the country we live in is a country that half the world wants to get to. Perhaps not half the world, but certainly lots of people wanted to come here because they think it's paradise. Um, and yet here in this country, we've got all sorts of issues that we're facing. Sexual confusion, I mean, gender issues. What, I mean, that's a, whole, that's a whole subject in itself, isn't it? I mean, I, I, 50 years ago, I wouldn't have believed the kind of world that we're now living in. And some of you might feel the same. So what is happening uh, in that whole area? Economic stress. Um, people worried about jobs and income and welfare and everything else and so on. Uh, so there's lots of evidence out there that we, we, we really need somebody to come and save us. Even at that level, even at the society level, there are evidence of cracks and uh, flaws and all sorts of things showing through. So this is where we're going tonight. This is an overview uh, of the evening. First of all, we're going to try and look at the root of the problem according to the Bible. Secondly, we're looking at the effects of sin on people's lives and the way that that ramifies and multiplies through human families and relationships and so on. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the impact on society. What happens in society when, when all this kind of dynamic? So it's quite complicated. You know, if you say, well, what's gone wrong with the world? You, you know, why do we need Jesus coming? It's not just a simple one solution answer. There are a whole a complex network of issues that affect human beings, as you might imagine. And just to say that the purpose of this is not to say, oh, how terrible we all are, this is really grim, let's all wring our hands about it, but actually to say the Bible gives the most accurate diagnosis of the human condition that I've found anywhere. 
And therefore, we need to be encouraged. God knows all about us. He knows what is in the heart of men and women. He knows our problem. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. And that's going to be the main subject of the next six weeks. Okay, root of the problem then. Number one, if you've got a Bible, by all means, follow with me. If not, don't worry. I should sort of stop regularly along the way. We're looking for a good part of this first part of the evening at Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, but what it what seems to me is that when you look at these verses, you get a list of the, the kind of the default human attitudes, the things that we tend to lapse back into uh, when we're not on our guard and when we're not on our best behavior. That doesn't mean to say that human beings are not capable of noble things and self-sacrificial things and doing good things. You know, you often find people doing the most lovely thing. I mean, Mike was saying on his way here, his faith in human nature was restored because his car broke down and some young man spent about half an hour or 40 minutes trying to help him to get the car started. Well, there you go. So people could do some lovely things, but we have a tendency to slip into these things that are all illustrated in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through to 6. Number one, unbelief. There's a tendency to not believe, to be cynical, particularly towards God. Secondly, self-centeredness. We'll come on to think about that more in a minute. Thirdly, pride. And fourthly, rebellion. These four are as old as mankind. They start in the garden and they ricochet down through generations, people after people, through families, running through. And I'll try and illustrate that if I can. Okay, so Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, we read this a few, uh, few weeks ago on a previous thing, but I'll just run through it again. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it. Or you would not, God never actually said that you mustn't touch it. He just said you mustn't eat of it. So she's already exaggerating God's, uh, God's command to her. Remembered it not accurately. But, the, but this is the key thing. The, the serpent then says back to the woman, well, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God and knowing good and evil. Look at the thing that was held out to her. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So we're going to try and break that down. The first thing then is unbelief. It's not exactly unbelief. She just didn't believe God. She believed the serpent. She didn't believe God. She believed the wrong person. And we find that a recurrent theme, uh, as we'll see in a moment. But the Unbelief, then, is pretty obvious. It's the willful refusal to accept God's words, God's motives, God's character. The number of times that people come to me accusing God of this, that, or the other. You know, well, I mean, if you listen to somebody like Richard Dawkins, he will go to town. And some of the things he says about God are absolutely terrible. But that has fueled a generation of people that are very quick to jump on the bandwagon and to, and to say, well, I don't believe. I don't believe. And, uh, and unbelief now is fashionable, so it does tend to make it easier. It's the root of false religion uh, and occult activity, as we've already seen on the one we did on various religions. Uh, so a lot of stuff comes out of that. But it's also, perhaps even more significantly, 
uh, the root of a lot of modern philosophy, of scientific inquiry, political ideology, and biblical interpretation. I mean, I went to college to study theology and the Bible, and I found that actually, although they teach you some things about the Bible, they also teach quite a lot of unbelief. So you come out, you know, with, with all sorts of doubts about the Bible um, that you didn't have when you went in there. Some men that were in college when I was in college, and, and that was a fairly evangelical college that I was at, but some men um, nearly lost their faith there in college. And uh, I've since had to spend the rest of my time in the ministry gradually recovering the faith that I started with sort of 50 plus years ago. Um, so uh, there's an interesting quote here, and it seemed on the internet, it seems to have been said by a number of people. So maybe somebody said it originally and then the rest copied it. When men stop believing in God, they do not believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And that's what happened with Eve. It, she stopped believing in God, but she started believing the serpent. Why would you believe this slithery character that came sliding into your life and spoke authoritatively uh, about, about your heavenly father that you knew that had created you, that had brought you forth, that everything else, all the wonderful things that they'd had, the garden that they were in, all these amazing things, why would you doubt that? Because of this character that came slipping his way into it all. Well, that's the way that it happens. When you stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing, you, be, you believe in anything. You know, you, you become very gullible. You became very skeptical about God, but very gullible about, about everything else. And we find this, of course, coming through in our society. I mean, I, I put up there that SETI, which I'm sure you all know is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's a pretty major organization in America. They've got a budget of billions of dollars, and they're looking for life in outer space. Um, and and you, if you ask the average person, most people today believe that there's life in outer space. Actually, the evidence for that is absolutely nil. They no, haven't found a microbe, they haven't found anything anywhere, but yet they believe that there is intelligence out there. I haven't even got a distant radio signal from far away. So they're hoping that maybe there's something, because in the end of the day, if you find life in outer space, it is perceived that somehow that takes away our uniqueness. If there are other people like us in other places, then it looks a bit less likely that God created us. So this massive organization, in some senses in America, is almost an organization for unbelief, for saying that we're not unique and the human race was not created by God. We just evolved here and probably something evolved somewhere else in some other planet somewhere. If we can only find it. And so we go on looking, 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 looking. So into the future, for many people, there is, a, there is a, quite a strong sense of unbelief. Uh, there's also, uh, when we look in the past, there's a lot of unbelief. We were talking um, earlier about, um, about Brian Cox that's been on the television and saying all sorts of things, as per usual, um, uh, that are full of unbelief, really. And I was reminded of this, uh, this guy, the Piltdown Man. He was discovered in the early uh, 20th century by a guy called Charles Dawson, and it was hailed as the missing link. It was thought to be early man between the apes and men, etc., etc. He was put in the National History Museum, and there it was for decades until they discovered that the whole thing was a hoax, that it wasn't a, it was an orangutan um, from somewhere far in the jungle somewhere, and he mixed some human teeth and he painted them all a brown color so it looks like they were stained, they all belonged together in the earth. The point is, the, the National History Museum, although it now, and I got this off their website, and now it exposes it as a fraud, for years and years they totally believed it. Nobody checked on it because they wanted to believe it. Stop believing in God, start believing in anything. 
And you will find evidence in our society of increasingly men and women believing un incredible things rather than believing God. You know, whether little green men in Mars or whatever. Okay. Self-centeredness, number two. We're going to try and run through these a little bit. Um, and uh, you got here, I'll come back to the baby in a minute. That's a familiar sight to some of us, I'm sure. But when the woman saw it, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. This fruit was totally everything that she wanted to be. I mean, it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for wisdom. It, it fitted her physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way. She thought, I, I want it. I want this, I want this fruit. I mean, at the end of the day, it's that I, I must have, I want it for myself uh, that is at the heart of, of human beings. We're all a little bit like that. And uh, one of the things that I realized when our children were small uh, is that, they, that our babies are born self-centered. Now you might say, not mine. I remember I had a big debate once with a mother and I said the baby was self-centered and she didn't like that at all. But actually it's true. We, a baby doesn't care about anybody. I mean, a baby, you, your baby's not going to say, oh, okay, mum, I'll stop crying because I can see you. You know, they, even if they can't speak, they're not going to do that, are they? You know, they, they want what they want. If they're hungry, they cry. If they want feeding, they cry. If they want changing, they cry. If they're a bit unhappy, they cry. I mean, mum may be having a nervous breakdown, but baby Maybe doesn't care. Now, generally, we can educate our, our little babies with good parenting. We can educate them so they're not quite so completely self-centered. But you only put a, a lid on it. You don't cure it. The, the problem, we've all got it. You know, we've all tend, I tend to, you know, somebody once said we care more about our own dead dog than our neighbor's dead child. That's a bit brutal, isn't it? Maybe, is that true? That could be true. Certainly, we do tend to think about my stuff, my house, my family, my things first. Then if I've got any left over, then maybe I'll think about you. So self-centeredness tends to be a very uh, deep-rooted condition in human nature. It's so deep that, uh, that we almost can't imagine human nature without it. I've heard people say, well, I'm only human. As if that justifies anything, you know what I mean? It's just the way we are. And it's true, but the Bible says that's not the way we always were. We didn't used to be like that. God isn't like that. God is not self-centered. God is, God is love, the Bible said. So to, to imagine somebody that just totally lives for others is something that is not always easy for us to get our head around. Now, you may say, well, okay, that's just, a, you know, it's, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit selfish. It's, it's, it's okay. But, it's, but, but of course, it's this that is the root of everything. Uh, it's this self-centeredness that blown up large on the world stage causes wars and tumults and crimes and everything and so on. You know, I mean, a thief goes out to steal because he, he's only caring about himself. I want it. I want your stuff. I don't, I don't care about you. It's just a baby, really. Um, and uh, none of us, of course, are in that kind of position, but you can see what I mean, what, what damage and problems it causes in the world. Pride. Uh, I looked up puffed up on the internet and I got, one, I got one of these and I thought, well, that's pretty neat. I mean, that's a puffer fish. When a puffer fish is, is feeling threatened, it blows itself up big. Uh, it's pretty ugly, I have to say. <laughs> but uh, it's trying to make itself more than it is. And I thought, well, that's, that's what it is. 
I mean, that's what pride is. And, uh, and in verse 5, it says, I think it's in verse 5, yeah, that's right. In verse 5, it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. Wow. I mean, they've already been given dominion. You know, God's given them dominion and charge over the whole created universe. But, but you could be like God. I could go higher. I could get bigger. I could be more than I am. Uh, uh, that, that's how I'm characterizing pride, this kind of desire to rise always higher than I am. And, and when she, she saw it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she wanted wisdom. She wanted to be like God. And that tends, that's the story of the human race. The early chapters of the Bible indicate an increasing tendency for man to seek to get, to, in his pride, to seek to get higher. That, that's number three on the, on the fundamental conditions. Now, I hope you're not getting depressed about this. The great thing is that God sent his son into the, God loves us. I mean, how amazing is that? We're not all that lovable sometimes, but God loves us. But that pride, along with our self-centeredness, is the root of a lot of the striving and the conflict and the war in the world. I mean, how many nations go to war over the pride of their leaders or the, or the pride of the people? We want to be bigger than them and better than them and so on and so on. Uh, you know, um, some cultures have a very strong culture of needing to save face. You know, I think in Chinese cultures and that, the, the worst thing that you can happen is that you lose face. You're always trying to, uh, to keep up appearances. But even in the West, where we don't quite have that same culture, we're still pretty strong on keeping up appearances. I, you know, I don't want you to see my weak points or my, or my failures or my difficulties. And even our sport and leisure can be affected by it. I mean, how many times do we hear now of, of athletes that are cheating and taking drugs and doing that? Because I want to I beat you. I want to get higher. So, you know what I mean? There's enough evidence, I think, to say that these things are fairly general. I've, I'm certainly conscious of them in my heart, so I'm hoping I'm not the only one uh, here that's like that. Uh, and then finally, rebellion. Uh, again, in, in verse 6, she, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it also. Um, I mean, I, 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 quite, I think that picture is an old master. I quite like it. Uh, the, the subtle way she's looking at him and the... I mean, I think he's lost it, hasn't he, really? He's, he's going to have that apple uh, or whatever it is that they're eating. She took the fruit and she gave it to Adam. Uh, so she became an evangelist for a rebellion. I'm doing it, you join me. You know, a sober man in a whole company of drunks, he's not very popular. They all want him to have a drink so that they're not, you know, they don't feel bad with him. They, they, they spread it around. And here she was, she, having done it herself, she wanted him to join her. Come and join me. That naughtiness is very contagious. People that are naughty try and get other people to be equally naughty or maybe even more naughty uh, than they are. So evil spreads by turning us into rebels. It makes us try and, try and pass it on to other people so that they get it too. However, the, 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 the difficulty with this is that rebellion against love uh, in the end, turns us towards hate. Rebellion against wisdom turns us towards folly. And rebellion towards life, in the end, leads us to death. So it's not, it's not to be recommended. Uh, we've all got a bit of a rebel in us. And I'm, you often find, reading about it, some of the big scientists that are coming down you know, heavily against God 
often in their quieter moments will actually admit to the fact they don't want there to be a God. I don't want to be a God. I don't want the idea that I've got to be accountable to somebody. I don't want a heavenly father because I'm going to have to, you know, one day I'm going to have to stand before him. So there's a, there's a, a, a lot of that kind of rebellion running through our society. But the roots of it are in all of us. Okay, so that's, that's the root of the problem. That was the first bit. Have you got that? Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, so unbelief, self-centeredness, pride and rebellion. The Bible calls this sin. People often think sin's a bit of an old-fashioned word, but it's a pretty good three-letter word to describe that whole complex condition that we get into that, uh, that makes us what we are. And it also goes on to, to declare to us that that is a fatal condition. It is a killer. It's like spiritual cancer. It will ultimately destroy us. So it's real. That's why Jesus had to come to save us. That's why he had to get crucified. Why would he be crucified if we only had a light condition that didn't actually matter very much? Okay, but it has its effects, and I want to trace those on, because you get them uh, also in this same passage here as we go on, verses 7 through to 23, and we'll read that in a moment. The effects of this upon them were quite immediate and significant. And I remember once asked to speak, to do a talk on depression, and the Lord took me to this particular passage, and I realized that all the seeds of depression, and we hear a lot about depression, all the seeds of depression are here in the Bible, because the my own conviction is that while you can find all sorts of chemical and, and mental reasons for depression, the real roots of it are actually spiritual. And uh, so here we go, the effects of sin, number one, guilt. Number two, alienation, separation, and all that comes with that. Number three, futility. Uh, number four, fear. And number five, failure. We're going to look at each of those one by one. <coughs> okay, so guilt, number one. Now, you may wonder what all those plates are doing there. It will all come clear in a moment. Um, but in verses 7 through to 10... The eyes of both of them were opened, so immediately after they've eaten it, the Bible says the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. They're, all, they're trying to cover up, trying to hide, feeling vulnerable. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You imagine what, you know, they've done it. And, and here is the Lord walking in the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Uh, well, there you go. That, that, that's guilt. The, the, the fear and the embarrassment of being found out, of trying to hide away, the desire to hide and cover, make excuses. The reason why I put those plates there was when I was quite a small child, I had my first encounter with guilt. I'd gone to a school party, and in those days, you had to take your own plate and cup with you to the school party. And my mum had given me a fairly, you know, um, uh, not particularly significant plate, a white plate out of our stock of white plates, and I'd gone to the party. And somebody during the party had taken my plate. And I can remember to this day thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I can't go home without a plate. I mean, I don't know why I feared my mum so much. She wasn't that fearsome, but I was still, I was probably only about five or six. And I thought, I know what I'll do. It was very quick. I was very quick thinking. I'd nick somebody else's plate and, uh, and <laughs> 
took it home with it. And then I got home and to my horror, I found that it was a different kind of plate to the one that I'd taken to, because my mum had others of these plates. And this one was more cream and slightly bigger. And I can remember very carefully placing it in the stack of, we've got a big stack of plates, about that high. You know how you end up with loads of tea plates? You know, everything else broken, but we had these tea plates. Why was I worried? I don't know why I was worried. But I placed this tea plate very carefully way down the pile. But for weeks afterwards, I dreaded because I'd now done a double sin. I'd, I'd, I'd lost a plate and I'd stolen a plate. What, what, how, what kind of explanation was gonna, I going to give to I had no idea. Anyway, my mum never found the plate to this day, and so I'm okay. But I remember that was my first experience of guilt. And you find, even as a child, you know, if you ask a child if they've done something, they say, no, 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 it wasn't me. We'll lie through our teeth to cover ourselves. Do we get any better as we get older? I don't think we do. I mean, we see loads of it in the newspapers. Deceit, hypocrisy, denial, self-deceit. We, we, all kinds of psychological tricks in order to cover our ground and to not be found out. I mean, I put Harvey Weinstein, poor bloke. I mean, it's just, <laughs> well, I say poor bloke. He's a bit of a, bit of a fellow, wasn't he, really? But I mean, the, I mean these, there's so many of these people. I, I was spoiled for choice who constantly try to cover their tracks and deny it and bluster and, you know, pay money and, um, uh, you know, bribe people and everything else uh, in order to get over the effects of guilt. So it's deeply in us, this feeling of guilt, this feeling that I've done wrong, I'm not accepted, I'm a failure, I'm, you know, is quite wide. And you don't have to have done anything terribly bad. Sometimes we just have a general feeling uh, of it. In fact, I read somewhere, not that long ago, that if people in hospital, one doctor estimated that 50% of those in hospital with physical conditions were there because of some kind of guilt issue in their lives. I, thought, I, I couldn't hardly believe that. I took a second look at it, uh, but, and I haven't been able to confirm it. But if that is true, that is astronomic. So it actually can affect us physically. So guilt, number one. Uh, alienation, number two, second major issue. Verse uh, eight, uh, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. They called the, they hid from the Lord God among the trees. So the first alienation was from God himself. And my suggestion is that that is actually the fundamental, that is our fundamental issue. Now most people will go anywhere rather than admit that as a fundamental issue. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather take pills or do something or anything. What I don't want to have to do is to repent and come back to God and say, I'm sorry, God, can I come home? That is, that is one of the hardest things for a human being to do. That's why there's often, well, you need the Holy Spirit, really, to press through and to bring people into the kingdom because men do not easily do that. So this alienation from God is really real. And it means that, in, that our status is, is a cosmic orphan. Some people glory in it, but the impact of that upon our psychology, I think, is very profound and real and troublesome. We don't actually know where we've come from or who we belong to. And it, the scientists don't help us by telling us that we've come from nowhere and we're going nowhere and we've got no significance and we're just an accidental blob. Now, what we try to do is to try and fill that vacuum in other ways, in other relationships, in uh, people, in uh, achieving things, in trying to show myself and everybody else I'm an all-round good egg, especially, I think, in the search for love. So that's why, um, I, I guess, for all of us, love is such a key thing. We've been created for that, but it's all the more acute 
if we feel an, uh, something missing in the, in the heart, in our spirit. I don't know my own value and worth, and so I constantly go looking for it. Uh, and especially looking for it in like some sort of special relationship and so on and so on. However, as we see looking on, uh, verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he's not only they're not only alienated from God, they're alienated from one another. I mean, their marriage took a severe blow on the same day. They not only felt distant from God, they, their own inner relationship. And of course, that then ramified down through to Cain and Abel. You know, Cain killed Abel. So this was a fairly dysfunctional family to start off with. I mean, how quickly the whole thing kind of runs through. So they were separated from others. It affects all our relationships. And of course, you see as uh, with them there, the tendency to blame others. And in verse 13, uh, <coughs> the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? I mean, Adam nailed her. You know, she did it. <laughs> she did it. The woman that you gave me, notice that, the woman that you gave me, she did it. Uh, anything so that I don't have to admit that I was in the wrong. And then she said, that was a snake. It, was, it wasn't me, it was a snake. <laughs> and, uh, you can, and I don't know what the snake said. <laughs> uh, there was nobody to pass the buck on to at that point. But that's, that's, the, that's the way that we go. Uh, sometimes like children trying to find uh, somebody to blame for whatever's gone wrong. So marital disharmony uh, followed really this initial alienation. So it was a double whammy. It was a big relational problem. And I would still say that probably of all the issues that human beings face, it is our relationships that are the biggest cause of inner conflict and ill and troubles. That will often then lead to family breakdown and, uh, and, and children being rejected and suffering problems and so on. And I, I once heard a speaker, uh, I've never forgotten this, it was actually a guy called Charles Solomon. He's written a few books on it, and he talked about the ways that you could reject your children and cause them psychological damage. Uh, some of them were fairly what you'd think, some of them were quite surprising. But I mean, certainly rowing came high on the list. You know, rowing and conflict in the family damages children. Even though they seem to get through it, they, they enter into their adult life with, with issues and problems and things that they have to deal with. So you can see this sin problem. It's not a private affair. It ramifies. It shoots through to the next generation. It affects, you know, maybe that's what, partly what the Bible means by the sins of the parents being visited on the children. It kind of runs down the line. Uh, high expectations. Sometimes, for whatever reasons, parents will really, they want their children to do well, pass exams, achieve something in sport, be good at everything, possibly because of their own feelings of inadequacy. If their children do well, it means they've been a success. But again and again, I found all these I've checked through in pastoral experiences have been confirmed to me. People that actually have said that their parents, you know, all, were always wanted. They, they don't feel they were loved for themselves. They were only loved if they could actually achieve something. Permissiveness. Uh, this was the other extreme where parents didn't bother. I had one, one man who's, who, who came from a big family, about eight children, and nobody ever knew what he was doing or what he was up to, but he had no sense that anybody really loved him. Nobody loved him enough to check up on him. So, you know, some were too much and some were not enough. Absenteeism, where the parents are not there, um, you know, for whatever reason. It may be that they're working long hours, or it may be they're away in the war, or whatever. I had a man whose father was away in the war, and he never got over it. You know, the man came back from the war after six years, 
and uh, and tried to apply discipline in the home to this young man, and uh, and it didn't. He he resented it, and he, he grew up. They were two men in the same church. They, they were they hardly ever spoke to each other. Um, the damage that was done because his father wasn't there at that crucial time. He couldn't blame anybody. It wasn't his fault. He was in the war, but it is, this stuff happens. So it kind of runs its way through. Alcohol and drug, drugs, classic case. My, my mother, um, she's died now obviously, um, but uh, she suffered hugely with her nerves during her life. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, often spent several stays in mental uh, asylums, had electrical treatment, had huge drug therapy and everything else. When we eventually, you know, when I got of an age where I could actually talk with her, I discovered that my grandfather had been an alcoholic uh, been violent in the home, not towards my mother, but towards my grandmother. So my mum had grown up at a crucial point of her life. She'd seen her. My uncle was there as well. So he suffered his whole life with his nerves. So here out of the issues. Now you probably go back to the grandfather. You find he got problems that went back. You know, how he got to be the alcoholic that he was. And so it travels down through the generations. Unless it can be broken into and changed, uh, it can, can carry on doing uh, damage uh, violence and abuse obviously speaks for itself and that was also part of the whole situation that in our family we came to terms with. And my sister, I've got three sisters and myself, we all felt that we'd been affected by this in some ways. Can't speak for them, I can only speak for myself, I'll come back to that in a moment. Obviously loss of a parent can also affect children, particularly if it occurs at a, at a pretty critical time. Um, so there's loads of stuff that can happen to us in our lives that can actually impact upon us. That was the, one of the books that Charles Solomon wrote, The Rejection Syndrome. And he said that these kind of issues that come down through, as, as he didn't actually say it like but as sin bounces through generations, it then brings forth other responses that themselves form part of the problem. And he said, he called that the rejection syndrome. It's like a circular thing. It, can, it kind of keeps going round and round and feeding on itself. So the responses that we make to the feeling that we've been rejected then builds a cycle. Instead of solving our problem, actually makes it worse. I mean, he's got the rejection syndrome and the way to acceptance. So if you want to, if, you, if anybody feels particular need of that, that, that's the book. I think it's still available on Amazon. But there were four things that he said that came out of feeling rejected. Number one was the withdrawal. We had a, if I can give an example, we had a lady in, our, um, in one church where I was who always sat on the back row. And, uh, and I, even though I, because I, I, we, we had a small congregation in those days and I was trying to get the congregation to come forward, I kept saying, I'm lonely up here, come, come, you know, come forward a bit. And we got them all to go, but she didn't. She, <laughs> she was right at the back there. And, uh, and, uh, and she, said, she, she said to me one day, she said, you may have noticed, I always sit on the back row. I said, well, funny you should say that, but I, I had kind of noticed that you did. She said, I, can't, I, I have to. She said, I can't bear to sit um, further forward. I, I can't bear to have people looking at me. I, I need to feel that I could get out if I need to. And so here was this woman living out her life. And I mean, in one sense, I, we, we kind of helped her through a little bit of that, but it seemed to be such a picture that you can actually live your whole life on the back row of life, never really getting into it because you're always 
feeling like I'm not good enough or I shouldn't be out there. I kind of let me pull back. Let me, you know, let me take a back seat. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm never, I'm never going to volunteer for anything. I'm never going to push myself forward for anything. That's the kind of withdrawal thing, which is often uh, a rejection uh, uh, symptom. Uh, anger. This is almost like the complete opposite. They go out on the attack. And it really helped for me when I saw this because we had several angry people uh, through my life in ministry that I've I realized that when you got underneath the, the, the thing where everybody thought they were just horrible people, they actually weren't. They were just needy people. They were just kind of dealing with it the best way they could. And almost like, well, I'm going to reject you before you reject me. Unfortunately, they do cause a lot of damage while they're working through their problems. The third one was guilt and blame carrying. It's my fault. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong. If you, you know, you tread on my toes, sorry, it's my fault. I shouldn't have left my foot there. That kind of thing. And I realized that that's, that's, that had been my uh, pattern all the way through my life. And was probably, went back to my mum and then my grandfather. You know, so I, and my sisters, I think they would say, they're all, we're all very similar. Because maybe, maybe we took too much responsibility. Maybe we feel that our mum never had time to care for us. Maybe we were suffering with low self-esteem. So we felt like we, we, ought, we ought to apologise really for living. Sorry. Sorry if I'm in the way. I do, you know, and so on and so on. So that quite, I think that's quite a common one culturally in our culture. Actually, more people than, than we realise are, you know, tend to pull back as a result of that. But then there's another one. And you can see these are all quite polar opposites. I mean, if you, get, if you get an angry critic married to a guilt blame carrier, they can have quite a stable marriage. It's not very well balanced because one part of the relationship thinks it's all the fault of the other one and the other one agrees that it's all their fault. So there you go. So, uh, but it's not exactly healthy, uh, healthy relationship. So ambition then is the fourth response um, to, uh, that builds the cycle. Um, and the need to succeed and to do something, we'll say more about that a little bit later on. I've added in another one because certainly in my talking with people through the years, I've realised that it also messes us up sexually. And I'm going to say that sexuality is one of the key parts of our personality. And it's quite easy to mess us up in that part of our life. And that can have also damaging effects. So a lot of sexual confusion can come about. You know, if you've got a dominant mother, what do you do about that? You know, do you... Do, you know, do you become, does a boy become more feminine or does he reject that and become the, the opposite? You know, do he become, does he hate women and so on and so on. So it, it kind of creates a lot of issues. You often find when you talk to some of the extreme cases, uh, of maniacs and people like that, that, they've got issues from their childhood that have traveled down through, uh, that have come through their parents. So I've added that one in with Charles Solomon's permission. Um, uh, so that's, uh, that's number two. Uh, number three, you remember there were five of these, guilt, alienation, uh, futility, fear, and failure. That's gaff, actually, if you want to put it like that, uh, the initials for that. So we're on to one of the first of the three Fs that are part of this. Futility, in chapter 3 and verse 17, uh, <coughs> God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree, that which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So God's 
judgment upon Adam and Eve, apart from anything else, was, was a judgment of futility. Uh, and uh, life is an endless struggle. Round and round you go. You know, you'll have to keep slaving away just to stand still and eventually you'll go back to the dust from which you came. From dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Uh, which, if it wasn't, if Jesus hadn't come into the world, would be a bit depressing, you have to say. But you see signs of this at, at many stages of life. Many young people suffer with feelings of futility. What's the point? I'm bored. You know, it's a definite characteristic of, uh, of the problem. Uh, maybe that's why they're always on their telephones or <laughs> doing their, they're playing on their PlayStation and things like that because they're somehow always trying to find some kind of purpose. Some, you know, maybe it's also because they're they're still they're in a waiting time. You know, if you're a young person, you 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 know you're waiting for your life to start, for your job to start. Uh, certainly, in my time, I was waiting for all of that to kick in and the marriage to get going, of children to come, and that kind of thing. So often that that stage, early adolescent stage, and uh, increasingly now it goes into 20s and even into 30s where people are kind of thinking what what is the purpose of it or what is my life about but then of course a little bit after that if you're not careful the midlife crisis kicks in and uh, that's famous for when you've got your children have grown up maybe left home you haven't got to do uh, that kind of thing anymore and you're sort of um, uh, you know you're thinking well now I've gone as far in my career as I'm going to go what my, where do I go now what is my life about and interestingly, I found through the years that many of the people that have come to Christ and become followers of Jesus have done so in this midlife period. When they're through that kind of initial time, they've done a lot of their stuff and they're saying, now, well, what is my life about now? What is it about? What is the purpose of it? And at that point, we start to think, well, maybe, maybe there is a purpose. Maybe there's an eternal destiny that I have. So midlife crisis, then, is, a, is quite a common uh, or. <coughs> We're not nervous, are we? Not at all. <laughs> Great. Okay, and then of course, uh, there's old age. What about the situation in old age when, uh, you know, when you feel like you're just, a, you, you've got no purpose at all, no significance, you're kind of, you know, you're just, you're just waiting to die. You know, now I can confidently say I'm 75 and I'm not there. And my view, my whole view of life is completely different to a person that thinks they're running down. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite the man I was, I have to say. Uh, but, I, but I'm confident and I'm, home, I'm homeward bound. And uh, so that has completely changed. But for a lot of people, I feel for them really, that have not invested in the sort of spiritual side, have not really given much time to God and have a real job getting a grasp on whether they have any purpose, they have any value at all. You want to say to them, you have immense value, if only you could get a hold of it. But futility then can be a real issue. Number four, fear. And verse 23 of chapter 3. So we're still on Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So here was, here was Adam and Eve created in a protected environment under the love of the Father, in a beautiful garden that God had given to them, and suddenly they find themselves as outcasts. They're in a hostile world. They're still, to some extent, under God's care and protection, but the feeling of vulnerability must have been completely intense. You imagine what, what an enormous catastrophe this was for these two people and for their lives. But I'm suggesting to you that in a similar way, that has then 
ricochet down through generations and all of us are inheritors in some measure of this inheritance. That's why we need saving. So anxiety, fear and worry are endemic in the human race. I remember we had one lady that I knew of who said, well, you can't help but worry, can you, because I'm only human. And I understand that. I understand why she says that. Um, and certainly she was speaking for lots of people that, that find that around. You know, in some senses, we've got less reason for it than much of the world. The, the weird thing is that there are places in Africa where they've got hardly nothing and they don't worry nearly as much as we do. So it, it is a peculiar paradox to be that we, that anxiety is, but it is rife uh, in our society, whether it's for employment or health or, or maybe it's just to feel safe and secure. My own view is that that is probably the major drive of materialism. We often talk about materialism in negative terms, so it's a terrible thing, and I guess it is. Uh, it's not what life is all about, but I can understand that for people that don't feel they've got enough, uh, that haven't got, uh, you know, that, uh, that feel insecure, that feel like they don't know what the future's going to hold, that feel they've got to be prepared for anything. Um, they're driven, really, to acquire more and more in the mistaken hope that, that will give them the security they need. It won't, of course, uh, because you could, you could have all the money in the world and still drop down dead. Um, no doubt, too, it's also uh, caused the widespread use of medication. I mean, massive amounts, massive numbers of people that are on quite strong medication just to survive uh, the anxiety and fear. I remember uh, once reading a statistic of thousands of millions of pills um, dispensed on the National Health Service to help people with anxiety. I haven't really found an answer for that. So, so fear then is number four, failure number five, um, and uh, you've got it in verse 23 again, uh, where they talk, they're, they're pushed out of the garden, and of course they go from their status, they're not only vulnerable and out there on their own, but their whole status uh, has changed. They were given dominion over the whole earth, and now suddenly here they are as outcasts. So the tendency to feel a failure, to feel low self-worth, again is endemic in, the, in human nature. The need to succeed, to try and make something of himself, and I think I've probably said, for me that was a big one. I came to a real crisis in my ministry, 30 whatever years ago, um, because I, really, I found that I was actually driven, I thought I was being driven by the desire to please God, but I actually found that probably because of my past, I was driven by a, a deep need to succeed, to be a successful minister. And uh, the church that I was ministering to at the time started to shrink. There were less people coming into congregation than there had been the week before. And I, I became overwhelmed with depression. And, and the Lord just met with me and, and I knew after that encounter that my real problem was that I, that I was driven by a need to succeed. I, wa I wanted to succeed. I wanted every, all other ministers to succeed, but I wanted me to succeed more. You see what I mean? Um, and, uh, and I had to learn that really, that, that the fear of failure was big in my life, a major driver of ambition. Of the, you know, I mean, half the people, <coughs> that want to be stars and want to be on the television and go for X Factor and all this kind of thing. They're, they're driven by a deep inner need to succeed, to, be, to have worth, to feel like I'm okay. Um, it can also affect us, of course, about our appearance. Uh, as you can see, I'm not all that obsessive about my appearance, but I mean, some people uh, are and, uh, uh, you know, and get very paranoid about the fact that they're not appearing at their best. I certainly remember coming across girls that, 
that wouldn't go out of the house unless they had all their makeup on and looked completely spick and span. They couldn't bear to anybody to see them without. And that's all due, uh, all related, I think, to this whole thing of low self-worth and failure and a sense of low self-esteem. Okay. So what I've been suggesting to you is that our vertical problem, our alienation from God, has had a big horizontal impact. The, the sin nature that is in all of us bounces around our relationships and our families and affects us quite profoundly. These five I perceive to be the five biggest causes of depression. We can often function uh, with, with one or even two of these things running, but if you start to get several coming at once, in fact, I actually used it uh, in the past as a pastoral tool. You know, somebody would come to me saying, I'm acutely depressed, I would say, well, let's come through, let's work through any of these. And often found, not always, you know, there are, I'm sure, other things that can cause it, but often found, it was when several of these things had come together, like they're having troubles with their marriage, and then they lost their job. You know what I mean? You kind of, just, suddenly you kind of feel it's all piling up on you, and you feel uh, down. <clears throat> what about society? This is our final point, how are we doing? Okay. Uh, the impact in society, that I need to run through this, you'll find it in Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 to 32. This is a diagnosis uh, of a society that is in rebellion about, towards God and in which uh, these dynamics, these individual dynamics are, are building until the point that they're sort of showing through and becoming um, uh, serious to the whole of the society to its um, cohesion. And we tended to grow up in a fairly stable society with this, the assumption that that was the way things always were. It is not the way things always were. The society we grew up in had a Christian heritage which gave us an inheritance and a birthright that we've taken upon ourselves. But however, the society in many parts of the world is unstable, cruel, difficult and hard to live in. And there are signs that our own society, if we're not careful, um, can go the same way. So I'm, I've summarised, I could actually make more points out of this, but deliberately, uh, surprisingly, trying to make it shorter, uh, my talk. Uh, so abandonment of God is the first thing that we find in this, and we'll look at each of these very briefly. Sexual confusion, the confusion that you get in individuals, then starts to multiply into society, and has some pretty bad and dire effects. Addictive behaviour of various sorts, violence and disintegration, and then the final one, which I found really strange when I first came to realise it, is the approval of evil, a society that actually not only does wrong, but actually says wrong is right. And um, <clears throat> that, that has a certain ring to it, I think. Okay, abandonment of God then. Well, uh, you don't need me to sort of talk about this. Um, uh, that's a, an empty church there, an empty chapel, and there are churches up and down the country that have been abandoned because nobody goes to them anymore. That's not the whole story, it has to be said, because although there are falling attendances in many of the mainstream churches, there are other churches that are springing up under the, under the radar and are often vital and living and quite dynamic. So that needs to be said. Uh, but however, on the surface, in terms of the culture, it appears to the culture that the church has really um, had its day and that God is no longer in favour. Atheism and agnosticism, by contrast, are in favour. And atheists and agnostics are constantly being wheeled onto the television uh, to peddle their wares and to share their beliefs. God is ignored largely in the public square. Whatever God is doing privately in people's lives, and we 
want to admit that God is doing loads of things privately in people's lives. Uh, in terms of the public square, it's often hard to find any reference to God. I remember Tony Blair once saying that uh, although he believed in God, that was not a thing that he was going to bring into politics or do anything public about. And there will be quite a number of politicians like that. Okay, so abandonment of God. Secondly, sexual confusion. I came across this um, uh, slide, which must be from somebody else's uh, uh, talk, but I thought it was quite interesting, really, because it, it shows the kind of thin line that you walk in a society um, in terms of the whole sexual area. Um, the Victorian era was, was known, um, in some senses, for being fairly stiff and tight, and so people were often condemned and so on, and sex was picked out as really the worst thing of all things that anybody could do, and so on and so on. And so uh, it has to be said, there was a lot less loose living, I suspect, but you certainly didn't get rid of it completely uh, in sexual society. Our society has gone the other way uh, towards licentiousness, and what they're saying in this thing, I presume, uh, is that there is a middle way uh, that God wants us to go of love and grace in the midst of it all. So I was trying to work out how do you, how do you actually put this? And I came to the conclusion that se our sexuality is a gift from God. Okay? Um, I always want to say, I've said that several times at weddings, you know, don't give, don't give Satan uh, the credit for inventing sex. He never did. He only ever distorted it and spoiled it. God actually is the one that, that created it and invented it. And it's like, if you like, it's like a little fire that burns in each of us. Now, most of us are not public about that, but, it, but we've got to accept the fact that that is true, that all of us have got that in us. But God created it in us for a purpose, so that we could, be, so that we could seek after, find love, find romance, commit ourselves, bring forth children, dwell in families, be faithful, be over a lifetime, watch over. Uh, those in our care and so on. That, the, that fire is meant to be, as it were, channeled and contained to produce something beautiful, uh, productive and good. However, and, and, I, and I also thought it's a bit like a car engine. Uh, you know, when you've got a car engine, you pour petrol in the thing, you know, very volatile petrol, um, but, the, but the car can contain the petrol in the cylinder and it can produce out of this volatile stuff, it can produce something productive and fruitful and hopefully as long as your car goes alright, uh, it can take you down the street and get you to where you want to go. So God's plan for our sexuality was something uh, along those lines that it would actually take us somewhere good and wholesome. But just as, as fire uh, gets out of, you know, when it gets out of control, stops being useful and starts being dangerous, so I believe it is with sexuality. And we're seeing something of that in our society. So lust, um, I better read the passage actually, but while I'm uh, speaking, verse 24 to 27. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relationships with un for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committing indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So, I mean, it doesn't really beat around the bush there. What it seems to be saying is that that which is a gift of God 
can, can get really scary and hairy if it gets out of control. It can do a huge amount of damage and it seems that one of the characteristics of society that is, as it were, increasingly suffering the sin issue in individuals is that it comes to the surface and does all this kind of damage. So first of all, as God is abandoned, so there's sexual confusion, lust, uh, seeking after um, uh, for the sake of, of just uh, pure um, self-fulfillment, not actually really loving the other person at all. Uh, promiscuity, increasingly seeking for novel experiences again and again with loads of different people. And again, all of this is within our society. Uh, perversion, where you get tired of, uh, of doing that. I mean, lots of people, it seems to me, are, are moving on from... Uh, heterosexual encounters to uh, bisexual encounters and many others to homosexual encounters and so on and you haven't got much idea where it will all end and then of course the, the confusion thing that is coming along in the wake I never saw this coming I have to say if you would told me about this uh, 20 years ago I wouldn't have had a clue that such a thing could happen I think they did some research recently in, in the last nine years since figures were last taken there has been a 2,000% increase in young people that now declare that they are confused about what gender they are. What, what has happened? A 2,000% interest in only eight years. So sexual confusion is big on the agenda. And it, again, I mean, it's just, God, God sent his son into the world to save us and deliver us. But we need to recognize that this is a very good diagnosis of the human condition. Addictive behavior... Uh, well, again, uh, in verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And I, I don't know how you de determine that depraved mind, but it seems to me like a mind that is no longer in control of itself, a, mi a mind that is enslaved. And that's, in the end, that is what addictive behavior does. It takes over your mind and soul and controls you. So there are many people now that are increasingly enslaved to all sorts of things. Drugs, alcohol and tobacco, I don't hardly need to say. Obsessive compulsive disorders ruled by, uh, by behavior that is not any longer rational. Uh, shopping, partying, fun, all of these things are addictive. And they've got, according to the world, haven't they, shopaholic? Certainly for one thing, where you just constantly uh, carry out behavior in order to find pleasure. Uh, so it's a kind of debased society. It, I came to the conclusion some little time ago that all self-centered behavior in the end is addictive. If I, if I indulge in pleasing myself in any one area, then I will probably find that it eventually caps a hold of me and I can't get free of it. So addictive behavior, then violence and disintegration. Uh, I mean, because a lot of people say, well, we've got a sexual revolution, isn't this great now? It's free love. It probably all goes back to the 60s where there was free love and, you know, flower power and all that kind of thing. And it's great. And the world is liberated. But if you read on beyond that to verses 29 through to 31, they said they have become with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, their senses, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That does not sound like heaven on earth. The end result of a society that, that ultimately 
uh, allows itself to sink into the morass of the sin issue uh, is, of course, uh, uh, pretty ugly. And uh, violence and disintegration are, uh, are everywhere around us. Family breakdown, gang culture, knife crime rampant. I think uh, we've already said uh, that London is now the, the knife capital of the country. And uh, prisons that are now getting beyond control. The, the warders don't really know how to control it. What happens when, uh, when the criminals start to win in the prisons? What, what happens then? So uh, disintegration. And then the final thing, uh, verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The final thing it says here uh, is a society that not only does wrong, but they've always done wrong, but a society gets to the point where they approve of it. And they actually say wrong is right, and right is wrong. And we're not that far away from that kind of a society. So that, that's a, the scenario. So what I'm trying to share with you is there's a complex cycle. I haven't got it all here uh, tonight, but hopefully we'll find that we've got resources that we can share with people and uh, take it out and spread it around and, uh, and represent that the Bible actually has a phenomenal insight into the, into the human condition. Uh, so the, the, the root then is unbelief, self-centeredness, pride and rebellion. Uh, the, the effects of it are guilt, alienation, fear, futility, fear and failure. And the rejection that comes out of that, withdrawal, anger, criticism, blame carrying, ambition, sexual confusion. This is a summary of the whole talk. Uh, and society then comes in on that and it forms a cycle. Uh, round and round, feeding upon itself, unless God is able to break in and break the chain. That, as we say, is a fatal condition. We really do need saving. We need for Jesus to come into the world. And this series is, <clears throat> is all about that. And we'll endeavour to set out the cure. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 23, but all have also the possibility that in him they can be saved and brought hope. Great. Okay. We'll pause for a moment and then we'll have a cup of tea or something like that. And if there's any questions, I have, I have some sheets here. Uh, if anybody's got any, it's ten past nine, so we won't go on too late tonight. Uh, but if you want to ask a question, do, do put one down. If not, we'll go home a bit earlier. Great. Thank you all. Welcome back to a couple of questions. We don't have huge numbers of questions. I didn't think we would necessarily, but the ones that we have got are definitely quality. Uh, so we've got this one. Do you think we're moving into times when we're fearful of causing any sort of offence that many, probably myself included, are in danger of creating a God-Jesus in our own image? And what do we do to steer clear of this? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think the answer to the first part of that question is yes, we are in danger of that. Much of the church has softened the message. We are desperately afraid of being condemnatory and sounding unloving. And I think find it hard, really, to get the balance that God does. I mean, God is perfect holiness, perfect love and perfect righteousness. And none of those are diluted. It's really hard for us to reproduce that. <clears throat> you know. And if we try to emphasize righteousness and doing the right thing, it's easy to sound condemnatory, and it, we, we probably are a bit, 
Um, if we sound, if we want to emphasize the loving bit, then we end up getting a bit soft and we miss out a crucial part of the, of the whole thing. God is righteous because he's loving and those two have to go completely together. How do we stare clear of it? The only way that I can think of is to keep coming back to the word of God and determine that whatever we do, we will not change it, bend it or adapt it to our, uh, to our culture. Uh, second question in Matthew, it says that in the days of Noah, there would be breakdown in society generally before, uh, before it actually happened and that the final days coming will be like the days of Noah. So do you think what we are seeing, uh, with what we are seeing, that God will also step in and bring the return of Christ uh, as he did with the flood? Uh, yes, I think is the answer. Uh, certainly as I read uh, the prophetic time scale, things are definitely moving towards the end. Uh, everything, and we will be looking at this in detail on about the fourth episode through in the series, the, the final return. So hopefully we'll uh, look at that a bit more detail, a bit more prepared uh, when we come to that. But yes, I think in a nutshell, we are, uh, there's so many things that are pointing uh, to the end times and to a situation, not just in society, but in politics, uh, in ecology, in, uh, in nature, everything, as though everything is moving towards the, the final um, time. Great. Thank you all very much. Didn't want to go any later tonight. It's 9.30. Great to have had you all here tonight. Thank you for coming. Hopefully you'll be able to come next week and we should try it. We should start earlier, definitely. And I almost say completely definitely, we'll finish earlier. Great. Thank you. Let's just break. Oh, let's just, let's just bow for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its uh, intricacy and depth and amazing astuteness when it comes to analyzing our situation and our problem. Thank you that with all that uh, insight, yet you still love us. You know everything about us, but you love us, and you desire to win us and gather us and bring us into your kingdom. So we pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak and move and work in us so that we might become harbingers and messengers of your grace and mercy, but also your challenge and, uh, and righteousness to our generation. So hear our cry, Lord. We offer this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.